Welcome, everybody. You're listening to the Benjamin R. Lewick Leadership Podcast, where we believe everyone deserves exceptional leadership. Benjamin brings more than 25 years of leadership and team development experience to the table as he sits down to chat with other seasoned industry leaders and talk through real workplace issues. In each episode, Benjamin identifies action steps that you can start using right away as a leader to address the things that affect personnel, productivity, and profitability. Join us in today's episode as we explore practical and tactical ways that you can create a workplace environment that increases revenue, productivity, and motivation while decreasing stress and personnel churn. Are you ready? Exceptional leadership starts in three, two, one. Hello, friends. Welcome to another Q&A episode with yours truly, Benjamin. Based on feedback that I've gotten from you guys, people requested that I answer more questions. So I'm going to try to get through a lot more than we did last time. So without any further ado, let's jump right into it. First question comes from Andrew. He's a marketing agency owner out in Denver. He says, what are the most important qualities of a successful leader? Well, Andrew, that's a great question. But before I answer that, let me ask you something. Have you ever heard of the great man theory in leadership? So it's this idea that leaders are born with certain innate qualities like charisma and intelligence that somehow make them destined for greatness, right? This leadership philosophy was popularized in the late 1800s going back into the early 1900s and kind of became the go-to approach for the industrial revolution leadership models that a lot of the modern brands still base their leadership and team development approach on. They haven't updated it. From modern marketplace. The great man theory was conceptualized on Darwinian principles of evolution and it encouraged everyone to believe that leaders were people who had been blessed with some kind of evolutionary mutation that gave them superior genetic abilities that everyone else around them didn't have. But here's the thing, that theory is a load of garbage. Sure, some people may be born with certain advantages that help them succeed in life and leadership, but true leadership is about so much more than that. So in my experience, the most successful leaders are the ones who prioritize empathy, self-awareness, and a willingness to learn and adapt. They understand that leadership isn't about telling people what to do. It's about listening, collaborating, and empowering others to be the best versions of themselves. I'll tell you a couple of stories real quick to kind of illustrate this point. So first one is Herb Kelleher, the co-founder and former CEO of Southwest Airlines. So Kelleher wasn't your typical CEO. He was, he was loud. He was boisterous. He loved to dress up in costumes, but he was also incredibly empathetic and down to earth. He always took the time to chat with his employees and get to know them on a personal level. As a result, Southwest has been consistently ranked as one of the best places to work in America. Another example is Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft. When Nadella took over as CEO, he realized the company's culture had become too focused on individual achievement and not enough on collaboration. So he made a deliberate effort to shift the culture, encouraging employees to work together and prioritize empathy and emotional intelligence. What was the result? Well, Microsoft's stock price has more than tripled after Nadella took over, and the company has become a leader in innovation and customer service. So here's a short answer to your question, Andrew. The most important qualities of a successful leader are empathy, self-awareness, and a willingness to learn and adapt. If you can cultivate these qualities in yourself, you will be well on your way to being a great leader. And then the question is, how do you start practicing those qualities in your daily life? Take the time to really listen to your employees and understand their perspectives. Be willing to admit when you're wrong and then learn from your mistakes and always be open to new ideas and ways of doing new things. With a little effort, a little bit of practice, be amazed at how much you can improve your leadership skills and the success of your business. All right, next question comes from Mark, who owns a construction company out in Atlanta. He says, how can I develop and implement a successful leadership strategy? 
Well, Mark, let me start by saying that the idea of a quote unquote successful leadership strategy is a bit of a myth. Okay. The reality is, is that there is no one size fits all approach to leadership. So what works for one company may not work for another. What works for what works for the guys across the street may not work for you. Now, that being said, there are a few key principles that successful leaders tend to follow. Number one, they understand the importance of communication. Leaders who are transparent, honest, and clear in their communication with their team tend to be more effective than those who keep their team in the dark or hold information tight to their chest, right? This doesn't mean constantly being the talking head, though. You have to learn how to communicate in a language your team members listen in. You have to learn how to share information with them in a way that produces that commonly shared understanding, right? Everybody on the same sheet of music. I get lots of questions about communication. So there's actually multiple pieces of content getting further into the weeds of what a more granular application and execution looks like on my social media. So use the link in the show notes, find me on social media, check out the stuff that I've already shared on communication if you want practically executable things explained in more detail. Okay, the second thing that successful leaders tend to do is they balance the needs of the team with the needs of the business. This means being able to make tough decisions that benefit the company while still showing empathy and understanding towards your employees, right? I encourage leaders to adopt a people-first approach to business. Putting people first means prioritizing what's best for the people connected to your business. It's employees, vendors, clients, customers. Putting them first means that revenue, profits, and company goals aren't prioritized at the expense of the people that make them all possible. But don't get me wrong, those things are still a priority. If your brand doesn't stay in business, then the segment of the market you serve will not benefit from the value that you're bringing to them, and your employees won't benefit from the value their jobs add to their lives. Maintaining this balance between what's good for the company and what's good for the team requires transparency, effective expectation management, a culture of trust, and thorough communication. Hey, there it is again. This concept is pretty deep, and I don't want to start unpacking the whole thing right now in the interest of time because we can get pretty granular with it. But if you want me to share more of my insights and experience related to this, reach out to me on social media or shoot me an email, and I'd be more than happy to chat with you. All right. And the third thing, successful leaders are always learning and adapting. They don't rest on their laurels and assume that what worked yesterday will work tomorrow. Instead, they're constantly looking for ways, especially new ways, to improve themselves and their team. In terms of implementing a successful leadership strategy in your own business, I recommend by getting feedback from your team as a starting point. Ask them what they need from you as a leader and what changes they would like to see in the company. This will give you valuable insight into how you can better support your team and drive the success of your business. Because a lot of times, the people who are down in the trenches doing the work interfacing with clients, doing things that you're not doing, see things from a different perspective, and often they're able to see things that we've missed as leaders. Super valuable. So then from there, focus on improving your communication skills and your ability to balance the needs of your team with the needs of the business. Success is a journey, not a destination. Don't be afraid to experiment and try new things along the way. Remember that winning isn't achieving an organizational goal or receiving an accolade. Winning is showing up consistently day in and day out, putting in the work, and celebrating the process instead of fixating on the target. If you do the daily consistent work and you create an environment that empowers your team to do the same, the goals will come to you instead of you having to try to chase them. Okay, our next question is from Jennifer, who is an accounting firm manager in Dallas. She asks, how can I provide effective feedback and coaching to my team members? Well, Jennifer, providing feedback and coaching is one of the most crucial skills for any leader to develop, okay? But let me ask you something. You're not assuming that you're the only one who can provide feedback and coaching, are you? I'm going to assume you're not. I'm going to believe that you're asking this to be a better leader. So the truth is, if you want to create a culture of growth and development, 
you need to encourage your team members to provide feedback and coaching to each other, not just from the leader down. That's how you create a high-performing team that's constantly improving and pushing each other to be better. So what does that look like? Let me give you an example from one of my past experiences. Okay, One of the team leaders that I worked with a few years back was frustrated with the lack of motivation and productivity on his team. Right, He was doing all of the coaching, providing all the feedback himself, and he was exhausted. Okay, He even started asking himself whether or not the effort was even worth it anymore. He's like, is the juice worth the squeeze? So we started working together to implement a new, simpler process where team members were responsible for giving feedback and coaching to at least one other team member every week. So full disclosure, at first, it was a little bit awkward and uncomfortable because people aren't used to mentoring and coaching their peers. And some people don't want a peer trying to give them feedback. But over time, the team members became very comfortable with it and it became a normal part of their culture. And in case you hadn't guessed it, the results were incredible. Productivity and motivation increased dramatically and the team became much more cohesive and supportive of each other. So to answer your question, the most effective way to provide feedback and coaching to your team members is to create a culture where everyone is responsible for giving feedback and coaching to each other. Encourage your team members to have open and honest conversations with each other and make it clear that you value their input and their feedback. Additionally, it's essential to make sure that the feedback and coaching you provide are specific, actionable, and delivered in a constructive way. Avoid generic feedback like, good job, buddy, or you really need to improve at that. Instead, focus on specific actions and behaviors and provide clear guidance on how to improve. In short, creating a culture of feedback and coaching is the key to effective leadership. Encourage your team members to provide effective feedback and coaching to each other, provide specific and actionable feedback yourself, and always be open to receiving feedback and coaching from your team members. All right, let's move on to question number four. This comes from Rachel, who's an HR manager at a tech startup in Austin. She says, how can I effectively manage remote employees and teams? This has become a super popular question. Lots of people are asking this, especially in what's, you know, and I'm throwing air quotes in here, the new normal with lots of remote teams or hybrid teams, things like this. Some people are saying remote teams don't work, et cetera, et cetera. The reality is remote teams are here to stay. As much as the establishment wants to argue against it, it is a thing. So this is a fantastic question. Remote work has become increasingly popular in the modern workplace, and it presents a unique set of challenges for leaders and managers. So the dominant narrative is that managing remote teams is difficult, requires a different approach than managing in-person teams, right? That's why so many big companies try to push against it. But is that really the case? Let me tell you a story about a company that successfully managed remote employees before it was even a thing, okay? Back in the 1990s, there's a small software company called 37 Signals, and they had a team that worked remotely long before it was a popular option. The founder, Jason Fried, said that he never treated remote work as quote-unquote second class and instead made sure to give remote employees equal opportunities to contribute and participate in meetings. This approach allowed the company to thrive and eventually become a very successful software provider. So the first step to effectively managing remote teams is to treat them as equals. Don't assume that remote work means less productivity or less engagement. Instead, make sure to provide equal opportunities for all employees to participate, contribute, and advance regardless of where they're working from. Another important factor in managing remote teams is for communication that is effective. The key to communication is to ensure that everyone has this information that they need to do their job. Using technology like video conferencing, instant messaging, and project management tools to stay connected and up to date makes a huge difference leverage the technology. 
Lastly, make sure to give your remote team members the support they need to be successful, right? You have to empower them. You have to create an environment, even if it's a remote environment, that is conducive for their success. Provide them with the right equipment and tools, set clear expectations and goals, and offer regular feedback and coaching. Don't forget to recognize and reward their achievements, even if it's just a virtual pat on the back or sending them something in the mail that they can open on a team Zoom call. Don't overthink it. Managing remote teams doesn't have to be difficult. By treating your remote teams as equals, communicating effectively, providing support, you can ensure that your remote team thrives just as much as your in-person team would. I'll leave you with a pro tip. If you actually sit down and work through and publish SOPs, standard operating procedures, for key team activities that address how remote employees are integrated into a hybrid workforce and keep them on a shared drive that everyone on the team has access for for easy reference, shared understanding equals shared responsibility, and that produces collaborative achievement. Okay, moving on to question number five. This one comes from Maria, retail company CEO down in Miami. What are some effective methods for goal setting and achieving business objectives? Ooh, this is a good question. So Maria, we all know that setting goals and achieving business objectives is crucial to the success of any company. But the traditional methods of goal setting may not be as effective as they seem. I'm going to share with you some kind of thought-provoking strategies that I hope will help you achieve your business goals in a unique and effective way. So first, let's talk about the traditional methods of goal setting. I'm sure a lot of you have already heard about this. Most businesses set SMART goals. It's an acronym for Specific, Measurable, Achievable, Relevant, and Time-Bound, right? We've all, well, I say we all, a lot of us have heard that before, right? While this method is helpful, it may not be enough to truly motivate your team. So in his book, Built to Last, Jim Collins introduced the concept of setting BHAGs, B-H-A-Gs, big, hairy, audacious goals, right? These are goals that are so ambitious, they seem almost impossible, but they can help motivate your team to push harder and work together to achieve something truly great. So to illustrate this point, let me tell you a story about everybody's favorite coffee, Starbucks. If it's not your favorite, it'll be your favorite for this story. Back in 2008, the coffee giant set a BHAG to serve 100% ethically sourced coffee by 2015. At the time, this seemed like an impossible goal, but the company worked tirelessly toward it and they actually achieved it a year early. So by setting this big, hairy, audacious goal, Starbucks not only achieved a monumental goal, but it also made a significant impact on the coffee industry and the world. So another method you can use in setting goals is setting goals that are connected to a higher purpose. People are always more motivated to work towards something that they believe in and feel passionate about because people innately are drawn to be part of something that's bigger than them. For example, Tom Shoes set a goal to give away a pair of shoes to a child in need for every single pair sold. This goal connected their business purpose to a greater good, and it motivated their team to work harder towards achieving it. Setting this goal started asking the question, how can we, instead of can we? That how is a key word there. So this approach to goal setting works really well because it's emphasizing the vision and mission of the company. Make sure that the vision you cast as a leader is big enough to hold space for the individual visions of each of your employees to fit inside the company's vision, right? So that's why BHAGs work so well. There's plenty of space inside that vision, that goal, for every team member's personal vision and goals to nest inside of it. If a team member's vision doesn't fit inside your company goals anymore, they will leave and they will go find another company with a bigger vision that their personal vision fits inside. Just note. Finally, make sure to celebrate your team's successes along the way. Celebrating small wins can keep your team motivated and focused on achieving your larger goals. For example, when Salesforce reached $10 billion in revenue, they celebrated by giving each employee a $10,000 bonus. This celebration not only recognized the team's hard work, 
that they'd put in up to that point, but it also motivated them to keep pushing towards the next goal. So Maria, to effectively set and achieve your business objectives, try setting those big, hairy, audacious goals, connect your goals to a higher purpose and celebrate your team's successes along the way. These methods all used together will help you create a motivated and focused team that is eager to achieve greatness for your company. Our next question comes from Kevin, who's a restaurant owner in Seattle. He asks, how can I create and maintain a positive relationship with my employees? Kevin, this is a great question. As a restaurant owner, you know that you are in the people business just as much as you're in the food business. Your employees are the ones who will make the magic happen, keep your customers happy. Happy customers equals great revenue. So it's crucial to create and maintain a positive relationship with your employees. Now, the common assumption is often and I've heard this a lot, that a positive relationship means being overly nice, always saying yes or saying yes as much as possible and never holding any employees accountable, right? But let me tell you, that's not the case. Being a good leader doesn't mean being a pushover. In fact, holding your employees accountable is one of the most critical things you can do to build trust and respect. When you set clear expectations and hold your employees to a high standard, they will know that you're invested in their success and they'll feel more motivated to perform at their best. Former Navy SEAL Jocko Willink talks about this in his book, Extreme Ownership. As the owner of your restaurant, you aren't ultimately responsible for the actions of every single person on your staff, right? But you do own the responsibility of holding each of them accountable for their own actions based on clearly defined standards of excellence and performance. However, accountability needs to be balanced with support, right? Employees need to feel like they have someone in their corner. That's where positive reinforcement comes in. Recognize and celebrate their wins no matter how small they may seem. A simple great job or thank you can go a long way in building a positive relationship if, and here's the if, it's coupled with a brief description of what the recognition is specifically for. You don't have to take the time to have a full-on conversation or have an impromptu mentorship session. Table 7 is waiting on their appetizers. What gets rewarded gets repeated. So be sure to acknowledge the specific behavior you want to see more of even if it's just briefly in passing, all right? Another essential aspect of building a positive relationship with your employees is communication. I know I mentioned this in a previous question, but I can't stress this enough, okay? Make sure you're actively listening to their concerns and ideas and make sure you're providing constructive feedback in a way that's both specific and actionable. So Kevin, here's a few practical things that you can do to build and maintain a positive relationship with your employees, okay? First, Set clear expectations, hold your employees accountable, while also providing support and positive reinforcement that empowers them to meet the expectations that you clearly set. Next, foster open communication and actively listen to your employees' concerns and their ideas. And then third, offer benefits and incentives to show your commitment to their success. Okay, what gets rewarded gets repeated. Remember, a positive relationship with your employees is essential to the success of your restaurant. So by building a culture of trust, respect, and support, you'll create a workplace that's both enjoyable and highly productive. Our next question comes from Ryan, who is the CEO of a law firm in New York City. He asks, what are some strategies for managing time and prioritizing tasks as a leader? Hey, Ryan, it is great to hear that you were looking to improve your time management and task prioritization skills. I've actually seen a lot of leaders express similar struggles with this. So addressing this is a wise investment in yourself and in your business. So let me offer you a paradigm shift before we jump into the meat and the potatoes of my response to your question. Okay, here it is. You can't manage time. There will always be 60 minutes in every hour and 24 hours in every day. And no matter how much leadership acumen or management skill you have, nothing's going to change that. What you can control is the activity you engage in during that time. So we have to stop thinking about it 
from a perspective of managing time or managing our calendar, you are managing your activities. And there's a nearly limitless amount of efficiency and optimization that you can realize when it comes to activity management. So the most successful leaders that I've worked with understand the value of focus and prioritization. They know that their time is a finite, precious resource, and they don't waste it by filling it with tasks that don't move the needle. An effective way to prioritize your tasks is by using what is called the Eisenhower matrix. This matrix was originally designed based on comments that former general and president Dwight D. Eisenhower made about how he decided what to focus his energy on as a leader. So if you've never seen the Eisenhower matrix before, imagine a box that is divided in half, top to bottom, and then divided in half left to right. So you have four quadrants, right? And then it divides these four quadrants into tasks based on urgency and importance, okay? However, I will tell you, the way that I teach leaders to use this tool, it starts off familiar, if you've heard this before, but it ends up a bit different than what you may have heard in an MBA classroom. So start off by creating a list of all the tasks that you think you have to do. This is essentially a mind dump, okay? So just get everything out on a blank piece of paper so that you can significantly reduce the amount of mental bandwidth that's being consumed by holding all of these things in your mind, okay? Keep writing stuff down until you feel like there's nothing left demanding attention in your brain. Once you have that list written down, move on to reviewing that list. Next, put a number one by all of the tasks that directly move the needle for your business. So what are needle moving activities? It's things like defining and communicating the vision, mission, and values for your company, monitoring and measuring KPIs for sales, productivity, and fulfillment. It is activities that increase customer satisfaction scores and retention rates. It is refining and implementing a company culture strategy that empowers your employees. These are the things that are both urgent, meaning they have an immediate time constraint on their execution, and important, meaning they have a measurable significant impact on revenue, profitability, productivity, personnel churn, client retention, and company culture. Put the stuff labeled number one in your important and urgent quadrant. If you grab a copy of the show notes, you'll see in there that there is a diagram of this if you need that to refer to. Okay. After you've put everything labeled number one into your important and urgent quadrant, go back through your list of activities and put a number two next to everything that is important, i.e. it will have a real measurable impact on your business and staff, but it doesn't absolutely need to be addressed immediately or in the immediate future. It is something that's important that will impact your business, but it's something that can be scheduled for a later date. Everything labeled with number two goes into the important and not urgent quadrant. Now, review your list of activities a third time. Write a number three by everything remaining that has a time constraint or a deadline in the near or immediate future. These items go into the not important and urgent quadrant. And then obviously everything left over goes into last, not important, not urgent quadrant of your Eisenhower matrix. All right. So now you may be thinking, cool, I've got everything categorized. What do I do with it now? Okay. Look at each activity in the first important and urgent quadrant and ask yourself which of those activities could realistically be automated so you don't have to personally or manually work on them anymore. Everything that falls into that bucket, write an A next to it, capital A for automate. Experienced CEOs understand that they realistically only need to be making decisions on about 10 to 20% of the activities in their business at most, and will actively look for ways to prevent decision fatigue as a leader. So in the interest of that, ask yourself which of the remaining activities in that quadrant could be delegated to a team member or to an independent contractor who is empowered with decision-making authority. Put a capital D next to them for delegate 
and write down the name of the person who you are planning to empower with this responsibility. And then finally, review the remaining tasks in this quadrant. If they are things that you as the CEO should actually be addressing personally, put a star next to them. If not, decide whether they will be labeled with a capital E for elimination or if they actually need to be moved to a different quadrant. Then go through the same process that we just described for the important and not urgent quadrant. Everything that ends up in the not important and urgent quadrant should either be delegated to a team member or eliminated altogether. And any activities that are in the not important and not urgent quadrant should be eliminated from your company entirely because they're a waste of time, resources, and focus. So here's the last thing that you do as a CEO. Write all of the activities from your Eisenhower matrix that have a star next to them on a different piece of paper. Review what should now be a very short list and ask yourself, out of these activities, which would have the greatest immediate positive impact on my business? That becomes priority number one. And then you go through the rest of the list, numbering them in descending priority order. You now have a strategically prioritized list of key activities that will immediately move the needle in your business that you as a leader should be focusing on. Schedule these activities into your open working hours, focusing on priority number one until it's either done or you realistically cannot make any further progress on it. Then move on to priority number two and so on. One final thought, make sure you're taking care of yourself. It's super easy to fall into the trap of working long hours and neglecting self-care, but this can quickly lead to burnout. Make sure you schedule time for exercise, for hobbies, for downtime, for spending time, investing time with friends and family. When you take care of yourself, you'll be more productive and you'll be more focused when you're actually working. All right. Next question is from Mike, who is an HR manager in a manufacturing company down in Houston. How can I improve the performance of my underperforming employees? Mike's question. Mike, hate to tell it, buddy. You are asking the wrong question. The real question you should be asking yourself is why are my employees underperforming in the first place? A lot of times we're quick to blame employees for their lack of productivity when it's we as leaders, we bear the responsibility for creating an environment that fosters success. Here's the thing. Most employees don't wake up in the morning and then they decide, hey, you know what? I'm going to go into work today and be mediocre at my job. There are usually underlying issues that affect their performance, and it's up to you as the leader to identify and address those issues. All right? One common reason for underperformance is a lack of motivation. If your employees aren't motivated, they're not going to be engaged in their work and their productivity will suffer as a result. So how do you motivate your employees? It's not as simple as just giving them a pep talk or a bonus. You can't just throw money at them and expect them to keep being motivated. You need to create a culture of recognition and appreciation where employees feel valued and know that their hard work is being noticed. Also, stop relying solely on motivation, which is an external force to encourage movement, and activate their personal drive, which is a more powerful internal force that compels movement. The obvious question then is, well, how do you do that? So drive is activated when we feel connected to and inspired by a vision, mission, and a sense of purpose that is larger than us. That's what causes people to go out of their way and work harder, longer, and more enthusiastically for something they feel passionately about. I know that you've probably seen this in your own personal life, or you may have experienced this as many of us have. As a leader, you can activate both drive and motivation with your team by clearly articulating the vision, mission, and purpose of the company and by clearly explaining and demonstrating how the specific activities that each team member is responsible for directly contributes to this big mission that you just described to them. 
Another reason for underperformance is a lack of skills or training. Perhaps your employees aren't performing well because they don't have the necessary knowledge or the resources to do their job effectively. If this is the case, then it's up to you as a leader to facilitate or to provide the training and development opportunities so that your employees can acquire the skills that they need to excel. Nobody likes sucking at things, especially when they don't know how to be better. So facilitate them being better. Now, if you've already done all of these things and you still have underperforming employees, then it might be time to consider a little bit more difficult solution, letting them go. I know it's not a pleasant thought, but sometimes it's necessary for the health of the business and the team. Underperforming employees or employees who don't resonate with or believe in the vision, mission, and values of the company can bring down the morale of the rest of the team and ultimately hurt your bottom line. Release them to go work somewhere else that is a better fit for who they are and what they're passionate about. So in summary, let's wrap it up. To improve the performance of your underperforming employees, you need to first identify the root cause of their underperformance. Motivation, skills, and resources are common reasons for poor performance, but there may be other factors at play as well. By taking steps to address these issues, you can create a culture of excellence and empower your employees to succeed. And if all else fails, don't be afraid to make a tough call and let go of employees who are holding your business back. Our next question comes from Kim, who is a healthcare clinic owner out in Portland. She asks, what are some strategies for managing stress and burnout in the workplace? Kim, let me ask you a question. When was the last time you took a break? <laughs> I don't mean just stepping away from your desk for a few minutes to grab a coffee or check your phone or to burn a quick cigarette, but a true break where you disconnected from work and allowed yourself to recharge. As a healthcare clinic owner, I am sure that you are familiar with the concept of burnout. It's probably why you're asking this question. Burnout is a serious issue that affects individuals across all industries, but is particularly prevalent in healthcare. In fact, recent studies that I've seen have shown that healthcare professionals experience burnout at a higher rate than workers in any other industry. My wife actually knows an entrepreneur whose entire business is built around helping professionals heal and recover from burnout that they experienced in the healthcare industry. So the traditional advice for managing stress and burnout is to practice self-care, such as exercise, eating well, getting enough sleep. And while these are certainly important practices, they're often not enough to combat burnout. So there's a couple of things that I'm going to recommend to you. One strategy they recommend is implementing a no email policy outside of work hours. Many individuals feel this constant pressure to be on and available at all times and feel like they always have to be accessible, but this can rapidly lead to feelings of burnout and exhaustion. This strategy can also be coupled with a notifications bedtime where you activate the settings that are available on every smartphone to turn off all notifications between certain hours of the day. Encouraging employees and giving yourself the permission to disconnect and enjoy your personal time can help reduce stress and improve work-life balance. Another strategy is to encourage breaks throughout the workday. This could mean offering meditation or yoga class during lunchtime or simply encouraging employees to take a walk outside. Even a brief break from work can help individuals recharge and refocus. Actually, there's a Princeton University study that I talked about in the most recent book that I wrote, The Antidote, and it says that it found that Aerobic physical activity actually reorganizes neural pathways in the brain by increasing neuron production in the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain that regulates anxiety. So by simply going on a five-minute brisk walk during a work break, your mood and focus can be increased immediately, and this effect will last for a few hours. So if you're taking breaks every two to three hours, it only needs to be five or 10 minutes, and you can dramatically reduce your anxiety and greatly improve your mental health. And then finally, it's important to foster a workplace culture that prioritizes mental health and well-being. 
This could mean offering mental health resources such as therapy or counseling, or simply checking in with employees regularly to see how they're doing. By prioritizing mental health and well-being, you can create a workplace where individuals feel supported and valued. So to implement these strategies that I mentioned in your healthcare clinic, start by having an open conversation with your team about stress and burnout. Address the elephant in the room. Label it. Chris Voss talked about the process of labeling in his book, Never Split the Difference. By labeling something, you remove the power from it. Encourage your team members to take breaks and disconnect outside of work hours and offer resources and support for mental health and well-being. By prioritizing the health and well-being of your employees, you can create a workplace culture that fosters productivity, engagement, and happiness. All right. Sarah, who is an IT company HR manager out in San Francisco, asks, what are the best team building activities for small businesses? Well, on kind of a theme here, Sarah, I think you're asking the wrong question. The best team building activities are the ones that don't actually feel like team building activities at all. Too often, managers and HR professionals fall into the trap of thinking that team building has to involve trust falls or group outings or other contrived activities that employees dread. I mean, let's be real. Like when I was in the military, we used to refer to a lot of these kinds of things as mandatory fun events because most of the people that were there didn't want to be there. And we were there because we got voluntold to participate. So don't get me wrong though, right? There's a time and place for entertaining team activities designed to increase morale and company esprit de corps. And some of the activities that you may have seen or experienced at like team building conferences, they're strategically designed to cause paradigm shifts, which opens you up to more collaboration in the workplace. I, I get that, but here's the truth, right? Team building happens every day in every interaction between team members. So one way to foster team building is to encourage employees to work on cross-functional teams. When employees have the opportunity to work with people from different departments or with different skill sets, they get to learn from each other and build relationships that become incredibly valuable in the long run. It's also important to create a culture of collaboration where employees are encouraged to share their ideas and opinions and where everyone feels like their contributions are valued. An easy way to facilitate this is by encouraging employees to provide monthly or quarterly cross-training sessions for other team members who are interested in expanding their skill set within the organization. As a leader, mentor your team members as they prepare the training materials and then provide constructive feedback afterwards so they can improve as a presenter, a trainer, and a leader within the company. Another strategy is to focus on developing emotional intelligence, or sometimes we refer to it as EQ, on your team. EQ refers to the ability to recognize and manage your own emotions as well as the emotions of others. When your employees have high EQ, they're better able to communicate effectively, resolve conflicts, and work well with others. One way to develop EQ is to provide training or coaching on communication skills, conflict resolution, and empathy. And then finally, don't underestimate the power of recognition and appreciation. People want to feel like their work is valued and that they're making a difference. Make sure to regularly acknowledge and appreciate your employees' efforts and encourage your team members to do the same. There's actually an entire section in my book about this, and I've talked about it multiple times in the content that I put out on social media. So if you're interested, you can go check that stuff out. Remember that team building isn't about gimmicky activities. It's about creating a culture of collaboration, developing emotional intelligence for those relationships between the human beings on your team, and recognizing and appreciating your team members in a way that they actually perceive as appreciation. So Sarah, focus on creating an environment where team building happens naturally and then watch your team thrive as a result. And the last question we have time for today comes from Jason. He's a financial services firm CEO from San Diego. 
He asks, how can I create a strong and cohesive executive team? Hey, Jason, you have hit on an important topic that is often overlooked by many CEOs, so let's jump straight into it. When it comes to building a strong and cohesive executive team, there are a few things you need to consider that may challenge some of the assumptions that you or maybe some other people in your peer group have. First, the idea of a perfect team is another business myth. Instead, we should focus on creating a diverse team that brings different perspectives, experiences, and expertise to the table. This will help you as a team to make better decisions, drive innovation, and then reduce the likelihood of groupthink. One way to achieve this is by creating a culture of dissent, where team members feel comfortable voicing their opinions and challenging each other's ideas in a respectful manner. This requires trust, open communication, and a willingness to embrace a certain amount of conflict as a necessary part of the decision-making process. Ray Dalio actually talks about this extensively in his book, Principles, and attributes much of Bridgewater's success over the past four decades to creating what he referred to as an idea meritocracy, where people aren't just encouraged to voice their opinions, they're actually expected to as part of their commitment to making the team as good as possible. It is part of their culture. Another important factor in building a strong and cohesive executive team is ensuring that everyone is aligned with the company's vision, mission, and values. That means taking the time to articulate these clearly in a way that people understand and ensuring that everyone not only understands them, but actually buys into them because they resonate with them. And then finally, it's important to foster a culture of accountability within your executive team. This means setting clear goals and metrics, holding each other accountable for delivering on them, and celebrating successes together. When everyone is working towards a common goal and holding each other accountable, you'll see a significant improvement in team cohesion and performance. As far as specific things you can do to implement these concepts in your business, I recommend by starting with an honest conversation with your executive team about the importance of diversity, dissent, alignment, and accountability, the things that we just talked about. From there, you can then work together to identify areas for improvement and implement team building exercises and coaching to help address those areas for growth. Remember, building a strong and cohesive executive team is going to take time and effort, but the rewards are definitely worth it. Well, friends, that is all the time we have for questions this time, but this isn't the only way that I answer your questions. I love to have conversations with other leaders who are looking for advice and tactics to help them show up as the best versions of themselves every day. Be sure to reach out to me on social media or an email. I will respond personally to your messages because I believe that I have a responsibility to share the decades of experience and knowledge in my leadership toolkit with everyone I can. Be sure to grab a copy of the show notes for this episode, and please feel free to send me both your questions and feedback about the show. I love hearing how the stuff that I've shared on this podcast has positively impacted people's lives and their leadership journeys. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. If you resonate with this podcast, be sure and subscribe so you don't miss any of the future episodes we're going to be putting out. Also, I would personally appreciate it if you take a minute to rate and review this podcast so that other people who would enjoy this content can find it more easily. Also, if you know someone who would like this episode, be sure and share it with them and encourage them to come check out what we're doing over here. You can use the link in the episode description to connect with me on social media. And if you haven't already, go grab a copy of my newest best-selling book, The Antidote. It will absolutely transform the way you think about leadership and developing teams. Until next time, remember, Everyone deserves exceptional leadership and you can be that leader.